And we're in Genesis chapter 23. We're excited about being in the Word with you today. We read this. Sarah, oh God, let's stand. Um, I, I'm, there's all kinds of reasons to do that, but more than anything, you're going to be sitting listening to me talk for a while anyway, so we might as well stand for the moment. It says in chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the days of the life of Sarah. And then Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Chet, saying, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial, place, a burial place among you, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Now the sons of Hip answered Abraham and saying to him, Well, um, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land of the sons of Hip. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Hit, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Hit, who answered at the gate of the city. That's, by the way, where all the business deals go down. Saying, No, no, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. But Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you'll give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, and he said to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land's worth ah, 400 jackals of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Chit. 400 shekels of silver, which today could be somewhere about 500 pounds, to give you an idea. currency of the merchants. The field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it, and the trees, all the trees that were in the field that were in it, within the surrounding borders, the borders were deeded. Abraham, they were deeded to Abraham as a possession in his presence, in the presence of the sons of Chit, for all who went in the gates of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Chit as a property for a burial place. Now before you just, before we jump into prayer, I want you to flip to the right to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to take a look at a few verses in the book of Hebrews as we sort of kind of go through this um, beautiful text here. So if you can, go to the right. You get to the book of Revelation. Clearly you've gone too far, but I want you to go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And we read this. And go ahead and get there. I'll wait. Hebrews chapter 11. That's all right. That's awesome. Go ahead and take your time and get there. That baby saying, come on, somebody flip my Bible for me. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verse 8 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Ladies, if you ever wonder about men not knowing where they're going, we're just following Abraham's example. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, which tells us the cities that are there at the moment do not have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
By faith, Sarah also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars in the sky and the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they do seek a homeland. If truly they had called to mind the country from which they came out of, they will have had the opportunity to return. But now they desire a better one, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now let's pray. Lord, I just pray that your word would burst open and come alive. Whether we feel like we know this text implicitly or whether we feel like we're absolute foreigners and strangers to it. I pray today we would all walk out of here lit up on you, excited about you and your spirit and what you have planned for each of us in this time. God, you know where we're at and you know how to profoundly, powerfully and personally speak to each one of us right where we need to hear, where we crave to hear you speak. So do so today individually that we would truly say, I encountered God and he met me where I am at. And in that, God, I know you love us enough to meet us right where we're at, but you love us too much to leave us there. So move us, compel us. May your scriptures, just the black and white, be full of color. May we live in the text for a moment. And in that, profoundly, God, draw us together as a family here today that we would find you and worship you and celebrate you as our God. And that, Lord, if there be any who have yet to know you personally, make the most simple and the most important information be the most clear. The truth that you love them so much that you would pay for their guilt on the cross of your son, Jesus the Christ. God, now I just pray that you would take this time and work in it, I pray. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that I would disappear and as you imbue me now, endue me now, Lord, with your Spirit, flood deluge this fellowship with your presence and with the joy that comes from it, abounding and overwhelming. And I pray now that only you would speak. Take my lips and attach them to your heart. Keep me clear and concise. Lord, minister now to and through me, I pray, as I humbly throw myself at your feet. By your mercy and grace, do your work, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and let them have the final say. About a year ago, in this country, Frank Mitford had, or Milford had, um, had passed away. Perhaps you're familiar with him. He had had the longest running marriage in Britain. He was, at the time, 101 years old. Uh, His wife, Anita, was 100 years old. They met at a YMCA dance and were married on the 26th of May, 1928, which means that they were married a total, actually, by the time he passed away, they were married for 82 years. Now, I don't know. I mean, you go from, like, tinfoil, right, to, like, silver, to gold, to platinum, what do you get at 82? I mean, what do you buy for that, you know? Um, well, I thought that was the longest marriage, but it isn't. Not at least according to that cesspool of unnecessary information, Wikipedia, as we found out that, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's a time when America has the record. Daniel Frederick Bakeman, the last surviving veteran war of the <coughs> American independence, was married to Susan Nee Brewer Bakeman in New York. Now, that means that he was alive and fighting during the War of the 1700s. That's 1776. They were married on the 29th of August, 1772. He was 12 years old. She was 14. Snagged an older woman is what he did. Still not old enough to drive, but back in those days, what did you drive? Now, ultimately, 
Daniel would live 109 and a half years. That's a long time. Susan would live 105 years, and their marriage would last 91 years and 12 days. 91 years. The only man in history that we're aware of that actually could say he's been married for more than 90 years. Most of us would be happy to live more than 90 years, nonetheless be married 90 years. I did find interesting, classic, cheeky article about the Milfords, the ones who were here. They said as they were getting older, they both lived in a home. He said that, well, she's a chatterbox, never stops talking, but it's okay because he's grown deaf, so they're still perfect for each other. Now, the reason I bring this up is there's a couple things, ladies, I specifically want to point out as we jump into this text. In chapter 23, verse 1, is the only time in the entire Bible where a woman's age is listed at her death. The only woman in all of Scripture that they tell us how old she was when she died was Sarah. I find that interesting. Not only that, but let me ask you, and I'm going to kind of toss this out for a moment. This is that moment where you get to bark out something if you want. Ladies, I'm going to pick on you. Well, I'm not even going to pick on you. I'm going to give you the opportunity to shine. Think about heroes in Scripture for a moment. As far as heroes in Scripture, go ahead and throw out a name. What names come to mind for those of you who are familiar with, with the Bible? Esther. Okay. Who else? Deborah. Nice. Ruth. Nice. Think about what it was about Ruth that makes her a hero. She married up. I mean, you know, truth be told. All right, Esther, yeah, responsible for being a hinge pin for helping save the entire Jewish people. That's something quite to be said. Deborah, as it raised up as a deliverer. Who else? Abigail, who stands in the way of David killing her husband, whose name is Fool. Ladies, if you have an opportunity to marry someone and the man's name is Fool, think about it a couple times through, all right? She even says, hey, you should have known, man. It's his name. He lives up to it. All right, so Abigail, so definitely as far as her husband's concerned, she should be. Mary, okay, Mary from the New Testament, wonderful. Anyone else? I'm sorry, Leah? Oh, Rahab, Rahab, okay, Rahab the spy, ex-prostitute turned um, spy hauser. So, okay, beautiful. Anyone else? Now, think about all those names for a moment. Now I want to ask you a question. Of all the women in Scripture, how many of them does God tell you to imitate? Do you have anywhere in Scripture that God tells you to act like Mary? Do you have anywhere in Scripture that God tells you to act like Deborah or Esther? There is only one woman in all of Scripture that God tells you to imitate. Do you know who that is? Sarah, twice, once in the book of Isaiah, once in 1 Peter 3. Now that's something a bit profound because now you're end of, you're end of the story with her. Now there's just something else that I find really interesting for what it's worth in this text before we actually dive in. Because if you look at it, what you got here is a business deal. You kind of go, wow, that's a lot of implicit details, explicit details on a guy basically haggling. He doesn't even haggle well. He basically says, no, 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 give me the full price. Well, the full price is really kind of 400 you know, shekels. He's like, well, good, sold, there you go. I mean, and we think, wow, that's an awful lot of information for that. But, but I want to point out a couple things in this. And if I could kind of title this, and this is in case Luke and Frito listen later, it'll be called How to Be a Good Caveman. Now, in this particular text... I want you to realize, first of all, that we do not know how long this couple was married. But we do know that they were married when they were called to leave at 75. The average couple got married about the same age as the Bakemans, by the way. They got, usually the gal got married somewhere about her secondary school years. Often the guys were usually 10, 15 years older, as is even demonstrated with Abraham and this particular woman as well, Sarai. And it's very, the reason I say it is it's very, very likely that this couple has been married for over 100 years. Well, that's a pretty wild thought. Now, listen, I mean, we read through this, and it's not like, I mean, if you love Jesus, I want to warn you, you're going to meet this couple. <laughs> They're going to be in heaven. You might live next door to them. You might want to get to know them a little bit. And, and if you do know them well, and they ask you where you're from, tell them Calvary Chapel. Now, uh, <laughs> in that, please hear me out, though, that I, I read through this, and it's a character I haven't personally met. We've walked with a bit through the last few days. But I've got to tell you, in the last few days, as I've been walking through this text in my own life, I wonder what it would be like to lose my own wife. I mean, I, I forget these are real human beings. I mean, I must look like a total lunatic. I, I'm the kind of person who walks out texts, so I'm walking through a group of people, and my I'm, tears are streaming down my face. Now, in the year, for what it's worth, 2014, my wife and I will be married 25 years. That's because we were both married before we were born. You're all aware of that. So, 
Just kidding, just kidding. I shouldn't lie about that, Lord, I'm sorry. But, I mean, and, then I, and I think, man, it's only been 25 years. And she's like, but you know what? Look, at they've been married this long, and she was contentious, and she argued. And, she, and I look at the text, and I think, yeah, but what would it be like for that moment now when, when you're actually staring at someone that you could have worked out everything, but you didn't? I mean, what do you, what do you think about at those moments? You think about, gosh, we should have gone on more trips. We should have we held hands more. We, we should have done something goofy more. We should have took more pictures. We should have whatever. Not, well, I should have chased after something else. And, well, glad we at least knew who we were when we died. And I look at this and, and, and I just think, what would it be like to live with, with someone for a century? And you get a verse. She, she died. And everything changes. I mean, no, nothing stays. Nothing, nothing stays the same. You have a son now. He's a son of promise. And, and again, the whole focus moves now to getting a bride for him. But I do find this interesting because we think, well, it's the Middle East, right? People don't cry. Have you ever been in the Middle East? People cry over everything. And, and I, I go to verse 2, and there's something interesting. There's two things that, that stand out. First of all, it tells us that Sarah died in Kiryath Arba, which is called Hebron. Hebron, by the way, means association or, or fellowship. And it's called Kirath Arba. Arba, if you were learning to count in Hebrew, Arba means four. Kirath means city. So it's the fourth city. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I get these things and I think, well, this is a clue. I should go search this a little bit. And I started to look and I go, well, let me think this through. He left Ur, and as he left Ur, he went up to Haran. That would be number one. And then from Haran, then he goes down from there and he winds up in that area between Bethel and Ai. And as he winds up in that area of Shechem, Bethel, and then he goes from there ultimately down, and he heads down from there um, to the area um, of Egypt. And then from Egypt, he heads back up to this area here. And I think, hmm, okay, he came out of Egypt. He was still with, with Lot. If you remember, they were both so stinking rich, they couldn't live with each other. So he sends Lot down. And that's, by the way, I mean, that's the very far end of this. I mean, that's chapter 13. And he gets called, basically, in chapter 12. So we're only one chapter into it. So in chapter 13, he gets called. He winds up in this area of Hebron. And he lives in this area, basically, until the first verse of chapter 20. This is a long area for him to be. This was the area, I mean, this was the place where he says goodbye to his nephew. This is the place where God says, no, no matter wherever you're going to walk, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you. You just walk it out. I think, wow, okay, you're requiring me to walk. Your job is to give. I, I like this relationship. And, but this is the area that's chock full of the history of every compromise they've tried to give to God. Hey, you should be my oldest servant. You know, I mean, come on. You know, we're getting a little older now. It was crazy before. Now it's more than that. It's absurd. You should take our oldest servant, Eleazar, from Damascus to Syria. And God says, no, no, no. It's going to come from your loins. Abraham is like, oh. And then his wife goes, well, he said your loins, not necessarily mine. Why don't you take our Egyptian maidservant? And then a child is born. And all that happens in those chapters. All of that happens in that area of Hebron, in that area here, the area by Mamre. And I think what's interesting is it says that this place that they bury is opposite of this place, which means that's something he could have seen. So here he is living at this place, and there's this cave he sees this whole time. And then this was the place where he has to go and rescue Lot, if you remember, because he was taken captive with the other guys there in the valley. And, and that's the last time he ever sees him. And then God talking about how he's going to take down the entire valley because of its wickedness. And then he sees the smoke rise from that and think, well, that's the end of that. And that was when he leaves, chapter 20, verse 1. So this area, this area here was an area where he finally parted from Lot, tried to compromise with God, tried to compromise with God, had to finally trust that God is the God of the absurd and impossible. And then from that, ultimately, he's also the God that, that doesn't put up with it forever. And then he leaves. And I think, well, he leaves, but when he leaves, he leaves and he ultimately heads over to the Philistine territory where he lies a second time playing that deception game about she's my sister. And what's interesting is after that, he's going to live in the land of Beersheba, which, by the way, for here is about 48 kilometers from this place. <coughs> and and I, I read this, and, and I think, well, he went to mourn. Like, were they separated in some way from this, or was it just he left his tent to go to hers? And that's even strange. You'd think they'd still have tents together. And I wonder what went on here in all of this. 
And if that were the case, man, that would be such a horrible time to, to lose the one you love. The time when you've been that weak. Regardless of the case, this is profound for me. In verse 2, I have two words here. Would you say these words with me? The first word is kafad. Would you say kafad? No, come on. This is Hebrew. You can't go kafad. Kafad. The second word is baka. Now, kafad means to tear your hair. Baka means to beat your breast. These are the terms that we read here when Abraham came to mourn for Sarah. Now, let me ask you something, Bible student. Can you think of anyone else in Scripture where a man cries like this over his wife? I want to warn you, both of these words, never are they used of a man to his wife other than Abraham. I think that's interesting. That doesn't mean they didn't cry. We don't know. I mean, I think of Jacob. I think that guy probably cried all over the place. But when I look at this, I think this is really interesting that this man now, having lived with this woman, who knows, maybe more than a century, is pulling his eyes out. And he looks, and there's a reality, and there's something that stares us in the face here, and that's this problem of death. Now, the problem with death is that it's introduced in Genesis at a time when God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this, this day, literally, mutamut, on this day dying, you'll surely die. And the problem with that is they do eat of that thing, but on that day, it isn't like they ah, and drop dead. The way we understand death, which only tells me something, that tells me that somehow God's definition of death must be a little different from mine. Because when he tells me the wages of sin is death, my natural thought is, well, you start sinning, sooner or later you're going to die. But truth be told, if you lived a perfect life, you're still going to die. And you can't live a perfect life, but if you could. But what's interesting is, what happens on that day in the book of Genesis, chapter 3? On that day, that intimate relationship between man and God is severed, and he no longer gets that intimacy. And I realize that's the reason why we hurt so much when anyone dies that we love. Because... We don't have the relationship we did before with them. Now, please understand, if I love you, I will hate what kills you. Does that make sense? Understand, God doesn't hate sin simply because it, he looks at it and it just says arbitrarily, this thing's unattractive to me. He hates it because it kills you. That's the point. When I was eight or nine years old, it became very evident that my mom was not going to be, she, she was not going to get out of this cancer she was getting. Now, she was a strong woman, and she could take on anything else, weak or not. She was way too stubborn and way too feisty of a gal to put down with anything. And yet in that, it was pretty obvious, as I was a nine, ten-year-old kid trying to carry my mom from room to room, as she had become just basically a skeleton before me. I hated the cancer that was in her. And the reason I hated the cancer because I saw what it did to her. It kept me from drinking coffee and smoking my whole life because she did both all the time. Now, if I didn't care about her, it would be immaterial to me. I wouldn't even have a, a feeling. I wouldn't have an opinion. Several years ago, well, now it's nearly 20, my, um, my middle brother, I have two brothers. One's old, bo they're both older. I'm the baby. The middle one, Mitch, he was, man, he was the one who got it all. My older brother... And I, we kind of got some cool little things here and there. We'll be thankful for that. But Mitch, man, he was the athlete. He could walk in a room. He'd turn everyone's head. And he, he would do that just for fun. And he was that kind of guy that could smile and get away with anything. Man, he just, he had it in spades. I mean, there was no, nothing that was lacking on Mitch except wisdom. And Mitch had um, a problem with a lot of drugs. And he wound up in Sacramento area at a drug rehabilitation center. It was, he was there because he wanted to get cleaner, so we thought. And so while he was there, it was shortly thereafter, he wound up heading up. The, he was the leader of this group, and he still was in the program, and that's just classic Mitch. And shortly thereafter, you'd roll him over, and there he would be in a pool of his own blood, overdose. Now, because you love a guy like that, you hate drugs because you hate what it does to you. Now, that's pretty obvious for us. And I bet there's probably people you love right now that you hate what's killing them. And you hate more than just what's eroding them physically. You hate what gets in between you and them with it. 
And there are sometimes where you look, and it's not even something that's physically eroding them, but to be honest, it's just something personally getting in between the two of you, and you hate that thing because it's interfering. And the reason I say that is, is that, that then God is showing us a little bit about what he's experiencing every day with us. Because every time we choose us over him, there becomes something between us, and you recognize that sin needs to be paid for. And we have a, well, we have a right to go to hell because we've earned it. But he didn't create hell for us. It's obvious in Matthew 25. When he separates the sheep from the goats, he tells those that are the sheep, go to the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of this world. But when he speaks to those with a broken heart that have refused his gift of his son, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus speaking then, the one who has refused his gift, he says, go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't build hell for you. He built it for Satan. And he doesn't want you there. This is Jesus saying, you want to go to hell over my dead body, and I'll rise up while you're trying to step over it. And the whole point of it is, is that God so loves you, not so tolerates you, not so puts up with you, but so loves you, He's wanting to do everything except usurp your choice to do it. So when they say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? I'd say a loving God doesn't send anyone to hell. You sell yourself. He did what was necessary to get you out. How can an intelligent human being say no to that? In our text, Abraham is staring in the face of that consequence as he's looking now at somebody that he spent his last who knows how long arguing, bickering, learning how to, to, to adjust, having a baby with, staring in the face of the biggest miracle they had ever seen in their life, going, wow, God meant it just the way he said it. That's a pretty crazy thing. And now he's to say goodbye. And as he looks, it's interesting. She dies in the place where he had to deal with the loss of Lot, if you remember. And he looks at that and he thinks, I mean, and this place is like, look, I need a place. And you know, that, that place, well, the only place that just seems to make sense to me is let's put her in a cave. So he goes and he starts to talk. And as he starts to speak to these people, notice it says in verse 3, it's the sons of Chit. Chit, by the way, for what it's worth, according to the book of Genesis, is one of the two primary sons of Canaan. Canaan's oldest son, by the way. And there's one son older than him, and then there's this one. His name is Sidon, by the way, for instance, those of Sidonia. And now um, we have the second son, and the son's name is Chit. Now, Chit, like the letter in the Hebrew, Chit, by the way, and sort of like it kind of works its way into that elemental part of our uh, vocabulary, our, our alphabet. means to bend over. It, it means, I mean, there are two letters, and the only difference between one and the other is this little break in it. And this one has a complete, it looks just like a staple. And that letter, hit, by the way, means to bend over. It means to be oppressed. It means to be in terror is the idea of it. And I find that interesting because he's talking to the sons of this this place. In some place in the land of terror, death needs to be laid down. And what's interesting is this is what I have in the topography. If there's a place of terror, a place where two things meet, because the word machpelah means to fold together, to put two things together. Somehow in this place, there is a garden, there is a cave, and there's terror. And they all sit next to each other. Terror of garden and then a cave. And he goes and he speaks to these people. And he says two things in verse 4. Look at it with me. He says, I'm a foreigner and I'm a visitor. And this becomes a very typical point of this man, Abraham. And the reason it's a typical point is because Abraham never lived on the world like it, was, it belonged to him. Even though God had promised him all this land, he had also said in Genesis 15, I remind you, four generations you're going to a place that's not yours. Four generations you're coming back out. So you're not actually going to claim the land I'm giving you, Abraham. But it'll come. I want you to trust me in this. And Abraham lives like that. He was a man of the altars and he was a man of the tents. And by the way, we have a lot to learn from a man like that. Because the other person who, by the way, seems to make himself really at home, if we think about it, is Lot, the complete opposite, who winds up at the gate of Sodom, kind of trying to really become a local. And Abraham doesn't even try to make himself blend in. He doesn't like he dresses in clothes. Now, if you're familiar with the term Hittite from Scripture, a Hittite is just simply a son of Chet. Chet, Hittite. That's the idea. 
So it isn't like he looks and he goes, you know, he goes and finds out, well, what's the clothing of the Hittites? What's the, what's the language of the Hittites? How, what are the phrases, the catchphrases? And he just sort of tries to learn what are the plays and the movies that are really big and hot right now so I can kind of really try to look local. I mean, what's their slang? He comes over and he just kind of lays it out right in front of him. Look at, I'm two things and I want you to recognize them. The first is I'm a girl. Gur is the term for foreigner, and it simply means a guest. What that tells you is, I'm not even going to pretend I'm from here. I'm not from here. And that's a beautiful place to start. And the second word for what it's worth, the word is toshav, the word for visitor. And the word simply means a temporary inmate. What an interesting term. So here's the way he introduces himself to the people. Hey, before we even go farther and what my intent is, can I make two things clear? I'm not from here, and I'm only here temporarily. I think that's a really good place to start when we start dealing with people on earth. I mean, I'm not saying, look, at we're Martians. Well, we are aliens scripturally because it tells us if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, according to the book of Philippians, your citizenship is heaven. Which means no matter whether you were born and raised on the block you live, you aren't from there anymore. Which is really, really, really good news. If you came from any place you want to get away from. Truth be told, every one of us should be. Now, for what it's worth, again, here we are. We've, we introduce ourselves, and the idea is, look, I just want you to know, my citizenship's in a new place now. So now, because of that, I recognize I'm going to be an ambassador wherever I go. As long as people, if people recognize, uh, there are certain ones of us that people just, I mean, when Landon walks around, the moment he opens his mouth, everyone's going to know he's from America. For whatever reason, most people think I'm from Australia for a while. Maybe it's just my face gets red in the sun or whatever. But they're like, hey, mate. And I'm like, I'm not your mate. What are you talking about? And, and, and the whole point of it is you realize sooner or later you're an ambassador if you're in a land that's not your own. People are going to look at you, and for the most part, the farther you are from the place, it's pretty likely that the less people like you they've seen. And if you are the only person they've seen, as weird as it is, they're probably going to draw a lot of conclusions about where you came from from your behavior. You know, I mean, if the only person I ever met from New Zealand was Amber, I would have certain conclusions about that. But we also met Bjorn. And that really makes, you know, and we met James, and we met a few other people. And we realized there is some, there's some variety there in some ways. Uh, one thing I have come to the conclusion, at least the people I've met, they're pretty weird in some awesome ways. They are some fun, wacky people. Not something I've met. Now, if the only people you ever met from America, which is the size of Europe, are from Texas, you would have a specific idea about what America's like. Everything's big meat. They talk really loud. And they talk like they're singing or something. Hey! Now, you need to understand why. In Texas, the average piece of property is the size of a borough here. So you have to have a loud voice. I mean, you're looking at a piece of property and you're going to talk to, you can't talk to your neighbor without calling long distance. So, you're like, hey, over there! And you have to talk over a tractor and a combine. So, there's a lot you can do. And then you come to a place, and you can usually tell whether somebody's from a place where people are really condensed or a place where they're not by the way they talk. Because the bottom line is, is that if are in a place where everyone's crammed together, your outside voice is pretty much your indoor voice, unless you're wasted here. In that case, probably you're going to be talking loud, and it's a pretty good possibility you'll be talking down our street in the middle of the night. But... For the average person around here, it's the same thing in Tokyo if you've been there because if people are so crammed together, you can't talk loud because you're going to interfere with 60 other conversations and that's just within your arm's reach. I mean, we're told that there are places where they have T-bars where they shove you into the subways just because there's so many people. And I think, praise God, I'm a head taller. So God be with you, Amber, when you're there. Get yourself some platform shoes so you can kind of look over them. But, you know, I mean, there's something like this in Ohio. You know, and you're, ah, oh, you know, there's nothing you can do. But then you go to a place where everyone's sort of brown and wide open, and everyone's going to be like, what's that? And you're like, well, that person's certainly rude. Well, there, if you were like, hi, how are you doing? They're going to be like, what's that person doing over there in the distance? Because you can't hear that. And the reason I say that is no matter where you're from, you've got to get a little bit of it from it as an ambassador. And the farther away you are from it, the farther removed, the more that you will be a novelty. Now here, granted, we're a little bit of a novelty as Americans, but people already made up their mind about it from people who have come before us. And now you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ if you've given your life to Christ. And people are going to sniff you out. And you know what they're going to say is, we've already seen what Christians look like. And you know what's amazing? 
If I don't even say normally I'm from America. I'll say I'm from California because that's a different thing too. But the natural opinion of a Californian is what they see on TV. Oh, you probably live in an apartment with six other good-looking young people, and you're all friends. You know, or how close are you to 90210? You know, and that kind of thing. And oh, you have one of those cars, probably, right? And how, you live near Rodeo Drive. I mean, you think not everybody does that. I don't have a swimming pool in my backyard. You know, that, but the, but because of that, and the, the reason I say that is, it's a really shallow, but it's a very easy box to compartment to put. Okay, Californians, this is what they're like. And then I say I'm a Christian. And someone goes, oh, yeah, I've seen that on TV, too. And, you know, the natural thing is, uh-oh. Because it's a pretty good possibility what you saw on TV does not, does not represent the general mass. And it certainly doesn't represent where we've come from, at least a bit of what I've seen. And the reason I say that is, is that this man didn't have a problem. Now, I understand, if she died at 127, how old is he? Simple math, Remember? He's 137, yeah. So he's 137. He's had a time to work out who he is. And at this point, he's going to look at him, and he's not going to go, Hey, Hittites, what's up, homies? And I'd be like, Hey, what's up, my homeboys? Ha, ha, ha. Word up. You know, and, and you realize that this, he's just like, Look, I'm, I'm a foreigner. I'm not going to play any games with you. I'm from somebody else, someplace else. And I'm not asking for property to live permanently. To be honest, I, I need to pay for another reason. I need a place to bury my dad. And they're like, well, they give this really strange thing. So, so he, again, he says these two words. And the one, again, is, is where I come from. The other is my attachment to the land I'm in. He's like, look, I'm not here, I'm not here permanently. I'm a temporary in, inmate. Well, that's an interesting thought. Now, look, when our band used to be on tour and people really tried to treat us well, they put us in hotels. Sometimes even ones with flushing toilets. And when, when we were there, there's, I mean, sometimes you're in those places for a week or two. And as you're in those places, you, you make the best of that time you're going to be there. But you always have in the back of your head, I'm not going to be here permanently. I'm checking out of this place. And for most of the time, you realize it's really soon. Matter of fact, you usually have the date. Okay, this is about it. The day before that, you start packing up if you are kind of plans ahead. Because you kind of realize that's what the deal is. Well, the whole concept of it is, is you don't look and you go, you know what? We need to change beds in here. I really don't like this bed. And, and this, who picked this painting? I need a painting that more represents me because it's not your place. You know it's not your place. You basically, you learn how to make the best of the place you're in because you know sooner or later you're checking out. And as a Christian, beloved, can I just dare say that I think we're really, really guilty of thinking somehow that we've made a permanent estate out of our hotel rooms? And we're kind of looking at this world and we're busy going, you know what, I'm just going to, uh, I just think I need to make this place a lot more like me. Instead of going, you know what, to be honest, I'm an ambassador, so I have a responsibility. And in that, I'm not going to be busy just trying to get myself so comfortable here that I forget about the fact. Because if I really do get really comfortable here, I won't want to check out. And if that becomes the case of us as Christians, I think we've really married the room a little bit more than we should. Now, what if you were in a hotel, and you, let's say you were put up in the Four Seasons, which is traditionally a pretty well, pretty nice place. And they said, look it, we're going to give you unlimited spending while you're there. We're going to give it for three weeks. But in those three weeks, you can spend it on whatever you want. But here's the problem. When you check out, you can't take anything you've purchased with you. And you think, oh, dang, this is, I'm already fantasizing about, oh, thanks a lot. And you, you realize, okay, so at first, maybe the first day you do something a little bit lacking discretion. Like, I'm just, and sooner or later, what you realize is your hotel room is getting really, really crammed full of unnecessary stuff, but it's cool stuff. So you try to invite people over, but you can't even invite people over because there's no room for them now because you've got 16 big screen TVs all sitting in, you know, somewhere next to your bed. And you're like, push those out of the way. And you realize after a while, you, you, get, you get really kind of sad and somber about checking out because you got this stuff or you go you know what this stuff really was stupid for me to get in the first place and I realize as a Christian the more that I focus on this as anything lower than my hotel room the more that I really started cluttering up this life of mine and it's so simple otherwise and, and I look at this and he just and he has no problem just letting you know look at this world as is as this is the place for me to leave my dead behind that's what this world's for in this cave specifically and so they say to him they answer him in verse 5, and then in verse 6, Hear us, you, my Lord, you are a mighty prince. Do you see that term there? Now, for what it's worth, the term in the Hebrew is Elohim Nesi. 
It literally means Prince of Elohim. I think that's an interesting thing. And they go, you know, we recognize you are clearly a servant or a prince of this God of yours. You are a mighty man, so no, anything's, anything's yours. And now here becomes the dangerous thing. Is at this moment, if you forget that you can't take it once you check out, you might start really hunting down prime real estate. And that becomes the problem for a lot of us. Now, I'm not telling you don't do something with this world. I'm telling you do everything with this world, but recognize what you're doing it for. You are an ambassador of eternity in a place that has no concept of it outside of you. And with that, here you are, you're going in this area, and they're going, you know what? You just pick it. Now, would you start thinking, mm, what's the nicest real estate? And he goes, you know, to be honest, there's this one cave I've been seeing from where I was before. Can I just have that? And they say, well, you know what? To be honest, just take it. Just take it. And he says, no, I don't need any favors from you guys. Now, understand, Abraham's very wealthy. But isn't it natural for us to, to take a gift given to us thinking, ooh, this is an opportunity, and there's no excuse at a moment like this for just trying to be greedy when you actually have the ability to really, well, you know this, you take a favor from someone, and often it comes with some form of string attached to it. And Abraham is not going to allow any string attachment to this earth that doesn't belong there, even if that means a favor from someone else. He's like, I have within me the means to be able to take care of this. I'm not going to put myself under your favor, so let me do this instead. Let me just pay for it. But I do have this particular property you know, picked out. And so this guy says, well, here's the deal. There's this guy, Zach Ephron. That's his name, right? Oh, it's just Ephron. And Ephron, by the way, which means fawn-like, which puts a whole new image behind that. And in this particular Ephron, he, we're gonna, this guy, he's got this field. And in, in, in this field, I don't even need the field. I just need this cave. And so they bring him to the city gate, which is the place where business deal uh, transactions take place. And then they sit down, and the guy does classic Middle Eastern, take it, it's yours. And Abraham's like, no, 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 no. What's the market price? And he says, well, the market price is 400 but what's that between us? Which, by the way, usually at that moment, that means that the bidding starts. If you've ever been to the Middle East and you're going to buy something, if you if you pay more than half the price they initially offer you, chances are you walked out there spending too much. I mean, you people that come to Israel with us and they're like, I just bought this headdress for 120 pounds. Man, it's so awesome. I'm like, wow, I've got two for five. But I don't want to tell them that because, you know. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I have family. I paid too much. Are you, oh, I paid more than that myself. Oh. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I live, I've, I've been here before. Let's not do this. And so when the guy's like, oh, come on, it's just 400 pounds, but what is that between you and me? And you can see him waiting for him to go, oh, that's true, so how about 200? But he doesn't. And I find this interesting. There's just no reason to argue over this price. Although, clearly, Abraham could easily have haggled his way. He could have gotten it for free. But he doesn't. He's like, well, if that's the market price, then let's pay it. And you can see the guy going, hmm, got this other piece of property. <laughs> but he doesn't. He's like, you know. And you, I want us to recognize this is the only piece of property Abraham will ever own. I mean, all this land that's, that's promised him, this is the only place he's got is this. So with that, he says, okay, so what? So that's the deal. He's all right, 400, it is 400, it is, and it is, and then he buries his, his bride, which, by the way, will be the same place where Abraham will be, Abraham will be buried, same place where his son Isaac will be buried, and his wife Rebecca, the same place where Leah will be buried, but not Rachel. Because do you remember where Rachel's buried? She's buried in Bethlehem, if you remember. Rachel weeping over her children because they ran out of room. It'll also be the place, again, where Jacob is. And it'll be the place where Joseph, more than likely, because he says, when I'm in Egypt, when I die, get my bones and bring them back and bury them in the promised land. More than likely, he's buried them in his tomb. Now, for what it's worth at that point, now we're looking at this thing, and we say, okay, wait a minute, let me see if I have this. There's a place of terror, there's a garden, and there's a tomb. This cave. Let me take you to two other tombs really quick or two other caves really quick and then let's close this deal down. Because I realize as I look at this that a cave is a really important place. In this case, the one thing I'd say is a cave is a place to leave my dead. That's the truth there. Here's one of my favorites. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, David is fleeing from Saul and he flees into a cave. One thing I do like about David is you can read in 1 Samuel and in the Chronicles the what, but you can, learn, you can listen to the why and the how in the book of Psalms because you could get actually David's heart laid out on a platter in Psalms. 
Here's the verse it starts with, and then I'm going to get into a psalm for a moment. And I, this shouldn't be long. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And, 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 and that's just the first part of the verse. Now, it says this in Psalm 142, verse 1. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. You follow me on this so far? So David's writing this particular baning while he's in this cave. He's escaped from this cave. He's escaped from his life. And he says this. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed inside of me. Well, you knew my path. And in the ways in which I walk, they have secretly set the snare for me. Look at my right hand and see there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuges fail me. Nobody cares for my soul. I cried out to the Lord. I got the blues. Oh, Lord, I said you're my refuge. Portion of my living, attend to my cry. I'm brought so low. You ever felt like this? It turns into another song later that goes something like, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. What's interesting is, let me read all of verse 1. So David's writing this psalm. Nobody cares. Nobody's really, right? This is verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22, the rest of it. It starts with this again. David therefore departed from there and escaped from the cave of Adullam when his mother and his brothers, his father's house, heard it. Well, it says actually when his brothers uh, and all of his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and so he became captain over them. So get this, ready? Here's David, and he's in the cave. God! I'm so alone! Nobody cares for me at all! And you hear, Honey, it's your mother. Find a little strange. To me, this just really gets me. Because here he is, he's going, man, nobody cares for me. And this whole family pops in. It's your mom, I, I made you some brownies, right? And it's the brothers, hey, knucklehead. Oh, man, you had to take them with you, did you? And he's like, oh, I still feel kind of alone. And then there's like 400, 600, 400 people that start showing up going, oh, I hate that king too. Can I stay here with you? David's like, I feel so. There's not even room for the cave for me to write the rest of this song. And I think, you know, a cave is a place where I leave my doubts and my desolation. Because David had to walk out of there and go, what an idiot I was. Out here I was thinking, I'm all alone. And I'm hiding. Remember, no, David's hiding because he doesn't want Saul to find him. So there he is behind it. You know, he's in this cave, not wanting anyone to see him. How does his mom find him? Either he's a terrible hider or God's like, let's have some. David's like, I'm so alone. Honey. I think that's just profound. And I think a cave is a place where I'm going to leave my doubt. And I'm going to leave my desolation. Here's the other one. Elijah. Perhaps you're familiar with the story in 1 Kings chapter 19. We read that he's a Tishbite. By the way, nobody else is called a Tishbite. I'm not sure what part is a Tish to bite or whether that's a... But whatever the point is, is that this guy shows up. He's a hairy guy. He, I mean, he's very much a forerunner of John the Baptist in a lot of ways in all of this. And he shows up, and it just says, he shows up to King Ahab and basically shows up and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then he runs. He just runs, which you kind of think the king's like, okay, that, this is not a normal day. This is, did any of you hire this guy to do this? And, and, and what it tells us is, and then he has this showdown. You remember that showdown? Where he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he's like, look at, all right, bring all of you guys. Now do your dance and do all your thing. Ha <laughs> ha, must be in the potty. Clearly he's not responding. All right, God. And he says, show them that I've done everything just like you told me. And God, of course, responds. And it's interesting because it says, the Lord told him to come to King Ahab, Ahab and he does. And then God says, now get out. He's like, you're all right. There's not going to rain until I say so. Oh, bye. And off he goes because God told him. And he heard it and he did it. God told him he heard it and he did it. And then he says, all right, God, do as you responded because you told me and I heard you and I did it. For the first time that changes is in, is in chapter 19. The first time this is listed, it says, because then Jezebel's like, what's he doing killing all the false prophets on my payroll? He's a dead man. 
And then there's a, there's a lady, perhaps some of you might think, oh, see, look at that, the power of a woman freaked out the guy. But what's interesting is this guy who just by the power of God called down fire to consume this, it says when he sees her threat, he flees. See, this guy was always a guy who was listening to God and doing what God told him to. But the moment he stops walking by faith and starts walking by sight, he freaks out and runs into a cave. Now here's our second cave. And what does Elijah do? The same thing as David. Nobody knows I'm the only prophet left. There's 50 hidden caves all over, but no, no, no. I'm the only one left. And we read this in chapter 19, verse 9. And he went into the cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said to him, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets of the sword. And I alone am left. You kind of get the same idea here? They seek to take my life. And he said, get out of here and let's go talk on a mountain. Behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore through the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. The Lord wasn't in the wind. And then after the wind was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. You got that, right? Now what's, what's the deal? He's sitting there on this mountain. And God's like, all right, come on, we need to work this out. He's like, all right, all right, all right. All right. He's like, okay, wind. I can feel it. I can feel it. But I'm not in that. Oh, wait a minute. The ground's shaking. The ground's shaking. That's what I'm looking for is the earth to move. Give me some earth moving stuff. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm not in it. <gasps> the heat. I can feel the heat. Oh, I can see that fire. I can see that heat. I can feel that heat because I'm not in it. In this. Elijah. There's a still small voice. Do you realize what God was doing? He was getting Elijah back to listening again. See, because somewhere about the time where he saw the threat, he was acting on his feelings. He was acting on what he could see. He was acting on what he could feel. He could, and we have to do the same thing. Oh, God, I remember that time when I loved you and I was so excited, but then circumstances happened that I saw and I started freaking out. And then, and then God, I just need you to move the earth a little bit. And God says, I don't need to move the earth. I need to move you. And to move you, I need you to be listening again. And I realize it's at this place that Elijah leaves his despair, his doubt, and his despondency. And I think, okay, so wait a minute. So a cave is a place to leave my dead, my doubt, my desolation, my despair, and my despondency. Okay, at least that's what I see in Scripture. Good. Because then God takes me to one last one in Scripture. And this is what he tells me. Well, it tells us in the Gospel of John. Now there was a place, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And at the end of that garden was a tomb. It was a place that had been carved out of a stone. It was a cave. So there was a garden. And on the end of that garden, on one side of that garden, was a place of terror, a hill of the skull called Calvary. So there was a terror, and then there was a garden, a field, and then there was a tomb. And in that tomb, I left my despair. I left my desolation. I left all my doubt. I left my despondency. And I left my dead. See, because that was the place where God showed us what he really meant when he was talking about. At the cross, I left my guilt. I left my shame. At the cross, I left all my poor standing before God. All the things that got in between me and him that God equated with death. But see, at the tomb, God showed me that this was so much more than just not being who I was. It's about being someone new. And if I recognize that as a Christian, that I'm not just not the guy I was, but according to Scripture, that I am a new creation, well, then all of a sudden, this cave thing makes a whole lot of sense to me. Abraham's like, look at. I'm not from here, and I'm not here to attach myself permanently to this place. I'm here for a period of time, and I want to make a difference so that when I leave this place, there's a legacy. But I won't leave the legacy that you've called me to, God, if I'm too busy trying to make this hotel room my home. 
but I want everyone in this hotel to hear about how wonderful you are. So God, please give me proper perspective on this. Because there was a place of terror, and that place of terror did have a garden, and at the end of that garden, there was a tomb, there was a cave, and in that cave, I left all of my despair. And I know I'll never be alone. If Jesus just died on a cross and didn't raise again, then I could say, well, cool, God's paid for my debt, but I could still feel alone. But if I recognize Jesus rose from the dead, then I have a risen, living Savior. How could I ever be alone if the reason that he rose was to be with me? I could never be alone anymore. I think all of my despair, all of my doubt, all of my emptiness is over the moment I peeked in that tomb and said, yeah, you're not here. And Jesus says, yep, now let's walk together. Now let me ask you something. Where are you at today? Honestly. I mean, what would be the, let me ask you it this way. Because we have this story of Lot's wife. Do you remember that? Where she looks back. And and I I start to wonder in my own life. There was a song I wrote a long time ago called Take Me Home. And in that particular song, the bridge just says, Will I crawl into you, removed and secure, that all I need is what I'll find? Or will I be as Lot's wife, forsaking my own life for the world I'd leave behind? The bottom line is, is if God were to come today and say, look it, I'm checking out anyone who wants to leave this hotel room, would you ask God for five more minutes? Would you say, you know what, God, okay, could you come back in ten because I've got a few things I really want to finish here before you, or would, if the Lord were to come back and say, look it, I'm only going to, and I'm not saying this is doctrine, I'm just asking it in the sense of, for, for my own heart check, if the Lord were to come back saying, anyone who wants to come with me right now, Let's go. Are you ready? Now, I'm not telling you that means that you don't engage this world and that you don't seek to make a difference here. I tell you, do that, but we do it as ambassadors, not as citizens. As that, when the Lord says it's time to go, I want to say, then let's go. Because, beloved, if, if we don't, how is anyone out there going to think what we, where we came from is any better than that? If we're busy trying to get everything from here, so, beloved, I just, I just want to say today, have you accepted this gift of Jesus that gave you life from the death that you had with God? And have you left your despair, your doubt? Have you left your desolation, your despondency? Or are you still trying to work both fields? This is the place where we leave our death. And there's going to be a day when I'm going to stand before God and I'm not even going to remember what death was because there will be no more of it before me. Are you ready for that? I want to be. You pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for the privilege of being able to, to look at a man who had a real human marriage. And though he had a real human marriage, you blessed him. And you blessed him and you blessed him. And God, I just pray right now for every one of us here. I pray first for anyone who may never have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would show every one of us, remind us again that that we've all needed to be saved from the death of that that separation of intimacy between us and you. God, I pray right now for every one of us here, myself included, that we would really prioritize this world the way we should. We would really recognize not only are we not citizens here, but we are ambassadors of a place that other people are still debating whether, first of all, is real, and second of all, whether it's worth anything to them. And I recognize we're going to be the only people, Christians, that are really going to represent that. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you are the only one who promised to save, you're the only one who's mighty to save, and you're the only one who accomplished what it took to save me. By dying in my place. And I pray, Lord, for every one of us that we would be able to say, as Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I know, God, that I will never be able to properly and truly say to die is gain if I don't make it true that my to live is you, Jesus. And I pray right now if there be anyone in this room that has never really said yes to the gift of Jesus the payment for our guilt and shame, that right now you would deliver them 
Show them by the power of your spirit. And then that God, now lead. Give them the courage to respond. And if that's you right now, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer. And I guarantee you, if there is anyone here who is a Christian, and I know there are many, they've prayed such a prayer before themselves. So you are not alone. You are in the best company for that. And if it's you, I ask you just to, to listen to this. And as you do, pray it with me. But at the end, I ask you to give a confident, resolved amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let the prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. And here it is. God, I confess to you, <coughs> I am a sinner. I've done wrong. I'm faulty. I'm guilty. And in that guilt, that guilt has separated me from a perfect, holy God. And you call that death. But you so loved me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me so that I would not have to spend eternity separated from that intimacy. So instead, I gladly receive the gift of Jesus the Christ. Your gift, payment for my guilt, that he died for me, that all of my guilt and shame could be left there at the cross, but that he rose again, and at that tomb I can leave my despair, I could leave my doubt, I could leave my despondency, and I could say, Jesus, be not just the saving token of my life, be my Lord right now as I commit myself to you. Have me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.